Hey fam, welcome back to the Free Trail Podcast. Of course, I'm your host, Dylan Bowman, here today with a recording of our first ever live show. What I hope to be the first of many live podcasts, the following is a conversation with Jason Hardrath, the king of FKTs, one of the great characters of the fastest known time culture. A couple weeks ago, we did a film screening in Golden, Colorado in partnership with Athletic Brewing, one of Jason's sponsors, the non-alcoholic beer company that's taking the world by storm currently. The film is called The Journey to 100. It documents Jason's fastest known time on the 100 highest peaks in Washington, which he did back in the summer of 2021. And in doing so, he set his 100th overall fastest known time in the process. Pretty incredible, impressive stuff. The film is on tour now, but it will be available to stream on outside TV in the near future. So if you're not an outside subscriber yet, go get on it because you're not going to want to miss this film. It is seriously top notch trail content. This conversation is Jason and I on stage in Colorado after the screening a couple of weeks ago. The first 30 minutes or so are Jason and I just wrapping out solo, talking about his story and about his Bulger's FKT project in particular. It's then followed by about 20 minutes of audience Q&A. It is sometimes hard to hear some of the audience questions, but I left it all in because you'll be able to deduce rather easily with Jason's answers what those questions are and I felt it was some of the best material of the conversation so I wanted to leave it all in next time we'll make sure to get a mic in the crowd but we are learning on the fly I have to say this was so fun for me I love the live podcast vibe and format I'm really glad I had the opportunity to do this with Jason and I'm now massively inspired to make the live podcasting thing a regular free trail feature. I have some ideas for how to make that happen. So I'll let you know what we plan to do and where we plan to do it as things materialize. As usual, a big thank you to our presenting sponsor, Speedland, for their support of the show. The SLHSV is shipping now. I'm meeting up with Dave and Kevin this week where I can't wait to get a fresh pair of these black shoes myself. Can't freaking wait. I'm also racing the Miwok 100K this weekend. Don't look now. Your boy's making a comeback. Racing not because I'm fit, but because I have some prototype Speedland shoes that I need to try to break before we move forward with manufacturing. Please do check these guys out. Runspeedland.com. Follow them at Runspeedland on Instagram. Support this amazing new footwear brand. Their support of Free Trail really is the only reason we exist. So big thanks to Speedland. Thanks again to Athletic Brewing for the opportunity to do this. Hope you guys enjoy the show. You can only teach what you learn. And you're a teacher. And you screened this for, what, 500 kids in K-Falls, including your students. So maybe expand on uh, that philosophy. You can only teach what you become and, and tell us what it was like to to show this to the group of kids back home? Well, I guess two things come to mind. Um, There's an old Chinese proverb. It goes, no stream can rise higher than its source. Um, And that's always kind of bothered me and also kind of guided me that you should pursue the higher places, both philosophically and, well, literally. Um, And along with that, you know, if you look at any 
hero's journey, as, as Americans, we tend to focus on the slaying of the dragon um, because dragons are where the gold is. But the essential part of that story that we forget sometimes is that then the hero brings the gold back to the village and shares it with the people there. And I think that's what drives me to be a teacher is that I find a huge amount of gratification personally and I see the importance of creating those aha moments for other people, just a new way of seeing themselves, a new way of seeing the world, um, to believe that something was possible that they didn't think was possible um, and to make progress in their life and, and feel good about themselves because of it. So what was it like uh, showing the film to the kids? Oh, man. Um, so as soon as the film stopped playing, uh, there was no like, conversation like this. It went right into question and answer. And it was super awesome to listen to it go from silence to 400 kids with their hands up with the pick-me, pick-me look on their face. Um, yeah, I mean... Is there a sense of pride there, though? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if pride is the right word. I can't put my finger on it, but there's, there's a joy there, yeah. right? Like, ah, to the audience for me that mattered the most. You know, no offense to y'all, but, you know, <laughs> um, to, to, to kids, it, it meant something. Yeah. So when you interact with a kid who reminds you of yourself, you know, who high energy has a hard time focusing, maybe ADHD, as you mentioned in the film. How do you interface with them based on your experience? Do you identify with them? And how do you, uh, how do you hope to influence their lives? I mean, there's always a, an art to it. Um, and every kid is different. It's like there's not a one-size-fits-all. Um, but when I notice that, I definitely remember my own hardships with um, impulsive behavior and, and you know, wrecking friendships and you know, always being the kid in trouble at school. Um, and I remember how I would always beat myself up first. It would be like slow motion where I'd do the thing and my mind would realize like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. And I'd be like, oh man, like this person's gonna hate me and she's gonna think that about me and then my parents are gonna hear about it. And so I'd already be playing out sort of the, the future in my mind in that split second, and then it would all come true. And so it was like this double whammy, right, where I'm already beating myself up, and then the world comes unglued just as I predicted. Yeah. And so when I catch those moments where I can see that kid that did the thing that was totally wrong or totally unsafe, but I can see, I can see that moment in their eyes where they're like, oh, come, on, come here, man. Yeah. I know what that's like. I can't yeah. let you do that but I know what that's like. And how important, <laughs> that must be so important. And you say also at the beginning of the film that you used movement sort of like for acknowledgement. It feels like it's been your mode of therapy and a way of building self-identity. And the film doesn't talk much about this rollover accident. So I'd love it if you could share that story a little bit because it obviously put you in a place where you didn't have movement anymore. What was that like? I mean, yeah, the, the film alludes to, you know, the first doctor coming in and just basically say, I brought up my love. At the time, I was a, a, a triathlete doing Ironman triathlons and, and that stuff and pretty passionate about it. Um, and so I brought up this love for, for movement. And yeah, just without missing a beat, he's like, oh, yeah, you're probably going to let that part of your life go and then walks out to go to his next patient. Um, 
and that was rough. And I mean, the, the, the injuries were significant. It was, a, it was a rollover accident. It was just me. I was stressed out from a day of teaching, and then the other track coach didn't show up, so I coached the whole team solo. And then I had volunteered to be a representative of my school at a district meeting with the superintendent. And being a young teacher, it was like, ooh, this is a big deal. I'm going to be in a room with the superintendent. Um, and so I was kind of hurrying, driving faster than I should. Had forgotten to put my seatbelt on, caught the shoulder. Um, Rollover went out my own side window um, and broke nine ribs, collapsed a lung, broke this shoulder in two places, and completely shredded the LCL and ACL of uh, this knee and had to have it rebuilt. So as somebody who has always sought movement, what was that like? Did you have a, a moment where you had to be still with yourself, and were there any learnings from that experience? Well, I guess one that comes right to mind is we tend to phrase everything as, as Americans as, I'm a runner. Or, you know, it's, it's an identity statement, right? Um, and what I had to go inside and sort of soul search for is that that's not the identity. That's, it's almost, I guess, an art metaphor works. It's like an artist chooses a medium to express their creativity through, whether it's photography or clay or, or uh, any assortment of, of mediums. And so what I realized is, running and swimming and biking, that's the medium I express my driven nature through, my, my, my ability to dedicate and obsess over things. It's like that's, that's the channel, a healthy channel, instead of an unhealthy one, that I choose to express that through. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a pretty powerful realization from it. Um, another piece that was really difficult to navigate was I built all of my friendships around movement. Right, so I had running friends, I had biking friends, I had swimming friends, and they were still all, all out doing badass things, and I was stuck in a chair at home. And that was a pretty difficult space to, to wade through, for sure. Yeah. I love how you just brought up creativity, and I figured we'd talk about this a little later, but maybe we should just go into it now, because the FKT phenomenon is an exhibition of creativity isn't it? It is sort of like an artistic thing where racing, you show up on a start line and you can sort of predict how things are going to go. Obviously, there's variables that you try to control. You have good days and bad days. But with the FKT movement, you have a lot more latitude to be creative and to like use your own vision. Is that something that sort of brought you to the movement or... Like, do you, do you feel more drawn to activities like that than pure racing? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I don't in any way want to downplay racing. I do think it serves a very important role because you do sort of offload a lot of the decision-making, a lot of the logistics to the race director. That's what you're paying for. It's like yeah. there's going to be a, a well-marked course and aid stations, and so I'm going to have things taken care of, and I can show up and just worry about my fitness and my headspace. And I think that's an absolutely essential tool. I mean, you saw the, in the film, you, you all saw the, my office at school and the 140 race bibs on the wall. It's like, without that practice of doing work on myself in a controlled environment, something like this isn't possible. So it's like those spaces are absolutely essential. Um, you could call it a school of sort. Yeah. Um, but taking that cerebral and creative element back on myself to figure out the logistics and the route finding um, of routes that had already been done and to sort of reach into the chaos and pull the best possible route for an area 
because um, I've created some 40-odd routes as well. Yeah. Um, that process to me is very gratifying. The act of like actually mapping and planning and figuring out where your potential exits are if things go wrong. It's a fun, creative thing. And I think also maybe this creativity thing is exemplified in just like the this project in particular, right? Like it's not just a pure running thing. It has climbing, rock climbing, glacier travel, bushwhacking as we saw at the Chilliwags. How do you, is that an extension of your creativity? That like Swiss army knife approach to outdoor recreation and maybe how do you define yourself athletically between all those disciplines? I'm still working on that. I don't have a, a simple answer uh, for what that is. Um, but I don't know, I feel like we are seeing that more where we were very, very focused on sort of specialization and individualization and, you know, climbing and in alpine mountaineering and um, running as well. And now it seems like it, perhaps through the movement of FKT um, and in other places, we're starting to see athletes want to blend those more. Um, maybe it's a certain maturation of each of those sports uh, reaching a certain place. But... Um, yeah, for me, this this project was. I mean, I'm a, I'm a teacher, so you know, I looked at what I was drawn to and motivated by um, throughout the 99 prior FKTs. And as soon as this Bulgers list came across my radar, it was like, oh, okay, fifth class travel, glacier travel, uh, orienteering, uh, bushwhacking, like all of these things I'd done in doses but it was gonna be that for 50 days. So it was like, oh man, this is like the perfect cumulative exam. Um, <laughs> Postgraduate. <laughs> yeah, so in the film, the night before the first peak, it shows you kind of shuffling through some handwritten notes. I'm just curious about that. Like, what's your process for taking the vision in your head and, <sighs> helping it to be like more understandable. Like, how do you map these things out? How do you think about it? What were those notes about? And how does it help you sort of think through the challenge at hand? So for this project, um, it was particularly large. Uh, I'd only ever climbed two of these peaks prior. So there were 98 on-site climbs uh, in this project. I had to come to understand uh, Washington is a temperate rainforest, so like it's not open forest walking. I mean, as you saw that that short clip, it wasn't in my in my experience with it. It wasn't two seconds. It was uh, you know forty some days of the fifty days involved some amount of time moving through um, that thickness of plant life. Sometimes on sixty degree slopes, um, which was interesting. You know, your feet slide out from under you, and you like grab a tree next to you, and you're hanging there. And it's like, am I six inches off the ground, or am I six? feet off the ground. Um, we refer to it humorously over there as BW5 because water ice rankings, um, WI5 is like pretty dangerous. So we humorously call it BW5 when you're like, I don't know what's below me right now. Um, so there were all of those components. And so what I had to do, and then I mean, also a weird one to have to comp, like plan for is what are the most likely places where fires are gonna break out? Mm. And then I had to like rank order, what are my risk factors? And it's like, well, fires are catastrophic. If, if a fire breaks out, it's game over, whole project's done. Um, 
And so you kind of saw in the video, I swept down the eastern side. It's like I, I planned yeah. that out with uh, over the course of six months of Zoom conversations, phone conversations with uh, prominent Mountaineers. The previous record holder was one of the guys, Eric Gilbertson. He was hugely helpful. Mm -hmm. Some current, just like people who are doing it casually on the weekend, um, ticking through the whole Bulgers list. Um, just so many people had these conversations just week after week and would add it to like a Cal Topo map and like write notes down and uh, like, okay, this peak has a 5.9 crux and this peak has sustained 5.7 and oh, then uh, this person says this glacier is, you know, I, it would be better to find a way around it, but if you have to, definitely have a partner because um, it's pretty likely someone will go through. Um, so it was like all of that over the course of six months and penciling it out. And then the final thing you saw me flipping through was sort of the final handwritten notes that I derived from it. I imagine it looked, it would look to someone on the outside, like, you know, those video clips where it's the crazy person with the string on the wall. It's like, that's <laughs> about what my map looked like. So you saw the, uh, the not crazy person version. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe I'd love to talk a little bit more about how you crowdsource that stuff from the community, including from the former FKT holder and just the spirit of the FKT movement. But maybe before we get to that stuff, maybe backing up a little bit. When you first learned about FKTs, maybe talk about the early days. Now that you're this grizzled veteran, you're the king of FKTs. Your partner, of course, is also fantastic. And I want to talk about that in a sec, too. Um, what were the early days of the FKT movement? And when you found this niche, did it feel like you had really found your calling? Yeah, so you, you heard it briefly alluded to. It's, I didn't start doing FKTs because I knew what FKTs were. I basically, the, when, when the doctor said, okay, you're, you're probably not gonna do this stuff again, I mean, I had to be somewhat literate in how human bodies work to be a PE teacher. I had to take biomechanics and anatomy and all this. And so I knew enough that I knew my running would come back much more sl slowly than doing steep climbing, like hiking steep hills. Uh, because you, when, essentially when you go up and down hills, anybody that hikes out around here knows you kind of keep your knees bent a little bit. You don't have to have that full range of motion. And I, I could only move my knee from maybe here to here at first. I was like, okay, I mean, the doctor wouldn't recommend it, but yeah. I'll go hike up and down the hill. Um, and so it started with a local hill, and then hill, hills led to local mountains. Pretty soon I was climbing Shasta, which is a 14er there in California, and then I started running into peaks that had technical summit blocks. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm gonna become a rock climber now. And that's led to just an obsession of learning all of the skills with the ropes and the climbing techniques that came along with that. And you know, as I alluded to in the film, during that process of learning a new sport, um, I was doing all the rehab to sort of get the knee back. And as that range of motion came back, um, I realized, hey, I can, I can kind of, like, I'm not anywhere near as fast as I used to be, mm. but I can go out and run 20 miles and my knee doesn't swell up like a grapefruit anymore. And it took about two years to really get to that place. Um, and it was like, well, I can now do this technical mountaineering. I'm just going to go see if I can, like, pick out three technical peaks that have a long trail run in between them and just go have a, have a hell of a weekend. Yeah. And so it was just, like, my own passions that led me to it. And then shortly after that, getting out there and doing those sorts of adventures, I came across the FKT website. Um, and it was like, oh, I actually had a route that I'd previously done that I then submitted, uh, um, uh, one linking up Shasta and it's sub-peak Shasta. that was number one? And that was, yeah, it was number one. Uh, <laughs> I did it before I even knew what FKTs were. Yeah. Um, but you submitted it and that became yeah, and it got the accepted. inaugural, what snowballed into a, an obsession over the last <laughs> couple of years. 
So cool. So let's talk about Ashley a little bit. Of well, course, she's a superhero. Yeah, we, we all know, all of us who've done these silly races and these big mountain expeditions, FKTs, we know it's a team, team sport. Ashley, I think, has more FKTs than any female on the Fastest Known Time message board, so shout out to <laughs> Ashley. The king, the king and queen, literally, of the fastest known time movement are in the auditorium tonight. So the next movie's about you, I guess. But maybe talk about your guys' relationship and how you support each other and, and maybe how she supported you on this project. Absolutely. I mean, the, the way our relationship developed was like a series of shared adventures. It was just like, oh, like that went, you know, we met and we went out on an adventure. I think we went rock climbing. And it was like, oh, that went pretty well. Like, maybe in a couple weeks, like, let's go out and climb something else. And just kind of kept that up for a while. And pretty soon it's like, hey, this is going really well. Like, maybe let's do this more. <laughs> um, and so that was kind of at the foundation of the relationship was shared passions, you know, a shared vision for what life should look like. And I, I do think that that's essential in a partner. Um, and so it became, because that was at the foundation, it was very natural for us to want to support one another in our development. Um, over the course of knowing each other, she's become a mountain guide um, and recently guided on Aconcagua with an all-women's expedition company, which is pretty rad. You can Bad give her ass. another round of applause yeah. if you want. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's very natural for us because we both care about each other and we both care about these experiences of the outdoors and, and see them as sort of essential to the human experience as opposed to just a hobby. Um, so, yeah, she was willing to step into this, this role uh, and we didn't fully realize actually, um, I mean, it was a bit of a slap in the face just how difficult the terrain is to move through. Yeah in the state of Washington. Like I kind of had an idea in my head, like as an athlete, like, oh, I'll be able to move through this section this fast and then show up and it's like, Washington's like, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> you, you think you're that good, but let me, sh let me show you. Yeah. Um, and so her role for resupplies um, became even like more essential. Um, like I'd kind of like written up logistics for like where she could hike in and resupply different points because the thing about a lot of these peaks is, you, you know, you've heard about the, the one on there with the boat ride for 40 miles in just to get to the start of the bushwhack to then bushwhack for 11 hours to cover seven miles of bushwhacking to get to the Chilliwacks. It's like, that was pretty regular. It was first. 11 hours to go seven miles through 11 them? hours. Oh my God. And I, I was, <laughs> I was probably in shape enough to run like a 530 mile and it took right. 11 yeah. hours to go. <laughs> yeah. Seven miles. Um, so yeah, I mean, that was the nature of the beast. And with that difficult access, sometimes it would have meant like, okay, I can go in and get these five peaks. And here's another five peaks right here, but it's impossible to like do them all in a single day. And it's gonna be dangerous, you know, with the glaciers and the fifth class terrain to like try to carry all that weight. But there is a trail that intersects here. And she became the superhero of the effort because she would sometimes backpack with a camp and resupply gear so that I could nail those five peaks, come down to the trail, have a camp, resupply my food, and then immediately go to the next group of five from there instead of having to come 20 miles out of the backcountry. Um, so yeah, I, I cannot applaud her role in this enough. Amazing, so cool. So, you know, I read that there's only four of these peaks have a trail to the summit, and you kind of get an appreciation of that in the film, is almost, it seems like the majority of them, you're sort of scrambling or doing some 
rock climbing to get onto the summit. Maybe paint a little picture for the Colorado audience of what the terrain's like in Washington. What made this challenge unique for those who've never played around in the Pacific Northwest? Because uh, um, it's remote. I mean, we, yeah. you get a, a feel for that in the Chilliwacks, but it's a severe landscape. So uh, I guess I'll just pull a particular, uh, I guess I'll call it an expedition. For, so when we went in to do the Chilean group, uh, there's about eight peaks back there. And so we had to catch a boat ride 20 miles in roughly to get dropped off um, and went in and tagged uh, Copper Peak, which is about 12 miles of road walking, um, and then another six miles to get to the peak uh, just uh, with some trail and then uh, a glacier crossing and then fifth class climbing. And that was just peak one um, of the group. And then the next day involved uh, crossing two different glaciers, doing a mile of... 5.7 to 5.9 uh, kind of razor ridge traversing um, to get between Bonanza and Dark Peak. Um, also tagged Martin that day. Uh, had to bushwhack, similar to what you saw, uh, back down to the PCT, uh, meet up with Ashley, which actually is a fun story in itself because we were so worked. Uh, basically, I'm just going to go ahead and tell the story. <laughs> Please, um, I'll put my is, mic this down. Is one of my favorite stories. Um, so the Bonanza Dark Traverse is just beautiful. I mean, you're in a beautiful position with the cascades all around you. You're on this razor ridge with just, you know, a thousand feet of air on either side. Um, and Bonanza is one of the, I think it's the, high, uh, the highest non-volcanic peak. So you're, you're up there, you've got a great vantage point. And we get up to that peak after tagging Martin earlier in the morning and we look at our watches, it's like, oh, we've got three hours of daylight left. Every trip report we've ever read of how long it took a team to cover this ridge was six hours we've got to go. And so just got into a flow and ended up getting to dark peak right as it got dark. Um, and then had to do the, the, in the fading light, we came down the glacier. You actually saw a short clip of it, kind of that one where you could see my partner out ahead of me with the rope between us and the setting, setting skyline, suns, uh, the dusk in the skyline. And then we had to do the bushwhack down to the trail in the dark. And it's like the whole time you're off trail and remote, it's like there's this urgency inside you, right, that keeps you awake. The moment we set foot on the PCT, you know that feeling when you're driving along and you shouldn't be driving anymore? It's that, but you're on your feet still moving and suddenly you like wake up as you're drifting off the trail. Um, and we both looked at each other. We thought we had about six miles left to go to get to camp and it's just like, there is no way. And so we just into the trail, dirt nap, yard sailed our gear around, pulled what we had with us over us. Anyways, fast forward to the next morning, she comes strolling up the trail. You know, Hero has, you know, jet boil to make coffee and some breakfast. And she, uh, you know, kindly after making us coffee, it's like, y'all realize you're only a mile from camp. <laughs> Yeah, you could have slept in the van, dude. <laughs> Come on. Um, amazing story. And yeah, I mean, I think the wizard guys did a great job of just like showing the majesty of that landscape in Washington. I think it's underappreciated, especially, of course, Coloradans have mountains galore and embarrassment of riches. But up there in Washington, there's a lot of cool stuff to do. Any particular reason you finished with 
Rainier, Adams, and St. Helens? I was curious about that. Uh, multiple reasons. So I, I mentioned in the planning phase that my primary uh, risk to avoid was the fire hazards, which is why I started east side and then swept up through the middle and then came furthest west because lowest, lowest fire risk. Also, like a second added benefit to that is uh, I cut my teeth as a mountaineer on volcanoes. Volcanoes like McLaughlin and Shasta that are right near where I live there in Klamath Falls. Um, and so getting to those volcanoes sort of felt like a coming home, like a victory lap. Like this is something I totally understand. Um, and that sort of confidence to just yard it out and go all in and just push on the peak and then sleep on the drive to the next peak felt very natural. Um, so yeah, that's the, that's the short version of the answer for that. I was wondering, because you summited St. Helens, the hundredth one in the dark. I was like, bro, you should have just sat and watched the sunrise for a little bit. <laughs> Well, you saw, you saw what the finishing time was. It yeah. was 50 days, 23 hours, 43 oh, minutes. Oh, you had to get under 51 days. It, well, my original prediction was that it would be possible to do it in 50 days. Yeah. And it just felt too good to make that at least mostly true. Yeah, crazy. <laughs> so I have like a million more questions, but I want to talk, but we, we'll, we'll carry this on a little bit more in Portland next week, but... I want to definitely talk about kind of the state of the FKT movement right now because it's, a lot of things are changing right now and you're a leader in the movement. So, you know, for those who are here, uh, you may not be familiar, but fastestknowntime.com was recently acquired by Outside and it's one of a number of things, a trend in our sport of bigger companies recognizing the cool things that people like you do and wanting to be part of it. So maybe I just open up a broad question to you about how you're feeling about the state of the fastest known time movement right now and in what ways you wanna sort of be a leader into this next generation. Absolutely, um, yeah, I mean, at first there was definitely sort of a little bit of a shockwave that rolled through because it was just this grassroots, community-driven, um, you know, website you saw Buzz and Peter just did it out of the passion of their hearts. Um, and there was some concern that rolled through, like, oh man, what if this turns into a giant money machine and kind of loses the spirit in the community? And so a lot of us rallied together and you know, I kind of, through my connections, got into the new people who are gonna be in charge of its acquisition and had some conversations like, hey, what's going on, da da da. Um, and they, they put that at ease and I think that, that to me is, is really important because one of the side effects as well of the car accident is I wasn't in a great space financially coming into that and it basically financially wrecked me and I was living out of a $600 smoking Astro van um, to be able to afford, because part of me knew it's like, no, it's to be who I am and to be healthy, I have to keep going out and chasing adventures and there was no way I could afford that if I was you know, willing to hold on to those threads of safety and, and normality of continuing to pay rent. Mm. And so that was my path to both pay down debt and continue to adventure. Um, and so because I, I really actually didn't have much money to say go to a race and I was able to do these FKTs and, and you know, donate, I always tried to donate a few bucks at least, especially early on, um, at least a few dollars. Meaning donate to, to, to the FKT so yep. they could keep the website running, yep. right? Yep. Um, and because, yeah, that was how it ran back then. Uh, but, you know, that kind of, it stays important to me that it stays 
on that level to the general public kind of free. And it mm -hmm. sounds like they're gonna keep it, keep it that way. And what they're going to do is add more features and integrate things from other platforms like Gaia mapping features and things of that nature to better the platform so that people can better map their routes and, and better show what they're doing. Because you know the maps on there, uh, even still right now, because they haven't started integrating, they're kind of taking their time to get to know the community first, which I admire. Um, the maps on there right now are just flat, basic, like with no functionality. So it's like you have to go somewhere else if you want to figure out how to actually do the route. Um, so it'll, it'll be an improvement for sure. So you and I spoke on the phone last week or something, but you have like some ideas about things that you would like to see. I think the phrase that you used was like disintermediated racing or... Disaggregated. Disaggregated racing. So maybe talk about that. Like, what do you see as the future for Fastest Known Time? And in what ways do you want to contribute? Um, so, I mean, for example, right now, um, you guys saw Nathan Longhurst. Uh, one of the cool side effects of this to me was he became the youngest finisher of the Bulgers list. He's 21 years old. Well, he's 22 now, but he's 21 when he finished it because he went and he climbed 65 with me and then went and finished up the others on his own. Um, and he's out right now attempting the SPS list, Sierra Peak section list, a list of 247 peaks to be the first person to do it in under a year. Um, so Shout yeah. out his website real quick, because yeah, it's insane. SPS2022.com. And it does actually dovetail into this conversation, because what we built for him is a 3D live tracking platform. So instead of just looking at a flat map, where you're watching the dot go across. It's like, since he's climbing mountains is the type of FKT he's doing, you can actually see some pretty high resolution 3D mapping and see those data points move through that 3D terrain. Um, so it's like some cool features for how to allow people to see what's really going on out there. Um, and I think, I think that's gonna become a part of the movement, just better ways of depicting what's going on in these spaces. And then I think what that'll allow for is potentially something, just like throwing something out there, is uh, like an FKT cup of some sort, right? Like, okay, these are the premium routes that are this year's uh, competition, and you know, people are gonna go through and compete, and whoever scores the most points on these variety of routes, and different people are gonna, you know, the whirl is a completely different beast than you know, the rim-to-rim-to-rim uh, -to -rim -to -rim Grand Canyon. Uh, so some people will score in one place, some people will score in another. Um, and potentially there could be prize money involved and sponsors involved. I love this idea. I love this idea, and I hope, I hope you guys make it work, and if I can help in any way, let me know. But maybe the uh, last question before we open it up to the audience here, and I promise Mason didn't tell me to ask this, but maybe uh, talk about athletic brewing a little bit. These guys have been freaking awesome. The product is amazing. It, I've been off the booze for four months now. Feel better than I have in my entire life. <laughs> And uh, it seems like they've been an integral partner for you and sort of made this possible. Talk about that partnership. Well, I'll start off with a story from when Ashley and I were out there. And this, this to me is like enough of a selling point on its own because of who I am and what I care about. Um, you saw that the, the van I ended up in had athletic branding on the side. There's actually a cool story behind that right before the Bulgers effort happened my van blew up, like catastrophic engine failure, totally unexpected. And I was like, I'm gonna try to solve this, like the Bulgers thing is still gonna happen. And they're like, sell it, buy something different, we'll split the difference with you. It's like, what kind of sponsors like 
we're just gonna jump in and help to make this thing happen. And so that was, that's a cool story. But then we ended up with this branding on the side of the van, right? Um, people literally came up to us at Trailheads to thank us for athletic brewing helping them turn their life around. And I'd be like, I'm not the one that made it. I didn't create the product, I'm just an athlete, but that's an awesome story, thank you for yeah. sharing. And it's like that alone for me, to, a tool that allows people to make improvements in their life is, is absolutely amazing. And to be a part of a movement where, you know, I, I'm a health and PE teacher, right? It's like I talk to kids about decisions they're gonna make in their life around the use of alcohol and drugs. And to think that kids I'm teaching right now in say kindergarten will grow up in a world where it will be completely normal to walk into a bar and ask for a non-alcoholic option. That'll just be, of course, it's always been that way, right? Um, that's a cool thing to be a part of. Um, so I guess that, that would say, that would sum up my, my stoke. I know so many people who've given up on the booze and uh, made their lives better. And it's, I mean, Mason gave the examples of how the business has grown as a result. So anyway, really cool. And shout out to Athletic for making this film possible. So that was an awesome conversation, man. To be continued in Portland next week. To our audience, raise your hand. Be prepared to shout loudly. Do you have uh, questions for our superstar, Mr. Jason Hardraff? Come on. There we go. So, great question. Um, over the, during the, the process of, of doing the Bulgers, I did inadvertently break the record on a few traverses um, of some sets of peaks. Um, so, I guess the 100 peaks wasn't technically my 100th <laughs> FKT. <laughs> Rebrand the movie. <laughs> but spiritually, it was. <laughs> I actually thought the same thing. Great question. <laughs> Let's see. Blue shirt here. So the, the, the 112 that I have are historical. So some of them have been beaten. Um, I don't know that exact number. Probably somewhere around 40% of them have been beat now. Um, which, considering I mentioned like around 40 routes I created, I would actually be a little bit sad if nobody bothered to come along and try to best me, right? It would be, uh, you know, because like we talked about, the, the creativity is part of what I love about this. Um, I don't just want to be a fast athlete. I want to have created routes that bring joy to other people. And so it would have been a little bit of an insult if people were like, no, that sucks. I'm not going to do that. Beautiful. Great answer. Let's see. Black shirt, glasses there. I'm, uh, I'm ADHD and not very organized, so I didn't keep an exact tally, but I would regularly cover Oreos with Nutella and eat the entire package upon returning to the van, and that would be just one of the things I would eat along with other full-size meals. Um, while I was out there, I would take in um, calories mixed in my hydration. Gnarly Nutrition is a product I use. Uh, I would always have like something crunchy like Fritos, 
uh, I probably, I mean, Snickers should have sponsored me. I probably ate a thousand Snickers almonds over the course of this thing. It was insane. Um, I'm still finding wrappers in places. Like, why is this in? Oh, the Bulgers. Um, yeah, it was a ridiculous number of calories. And I still was losing weight drastically in the early part of the project. I went from 178 pounds, I believe, is what I opened at, because I tried to like gain a little weight prior, because I knew this it was just impossible to take in enough calories over the course of this thing. Um, I think at my lightest, I was down to about my high school weight, which was about 157, 158 pounds. Um, and luckily, it kind of stabilized, and I stopped uh, deteriorating. Um, actually, Ashley was on the stage when I presented this to students in Klamath Falls, and you know, we got asked questions about that, and she expressed like she was worried. She didn't know if, like, you know, she was watching me, like, drastically, like, get smaller each day in front of her eyes, and she's like, oh, what's going to happen here? Um, so, yeah, definitely glad it, glad it stabilized and was able to get into a groove. See you, Todd. What's the closest, like, near-death experience that you had going up one of your feet? That literally, like, probably made you poop your pants. There were, I mean, you try to be very careful out there, obviously, but there were three, three close calls, and to keep some mystery, I'll just tell one. Um, when you're traversing across snow and glacier, there are things called snow bridges, where the snow can be melting out from underneath because of, say, a water flow that goes underneath that brings some heat underneath the, the snow structure. And you can never fully tell where those are or how thick they are, um, unless they've already opened up in one section. You can be like, oh, clearly that's a snow bridge. I shouldn't go there. Um, and I was walking across and ended up on one, and it broke out from underneath me. And luckily, it was like a big break, and so it had some mass to it. So I was able to kind of, as it was breaking, push off and step forward and kind of latch onto the rock that was in front of me. Um, and I like looked to where it fell to, and it, sure enough, it was like a waterfall down below, and I could have ended up falling maybe 45 feet. Um, so that one was kind of uh, like left me shaken a bit afterwards. Safety first, everybody. What a great question that Might is. be the, question, yeah. the best question, question of, the night. of the night. I did it because I love climbing mountains, and that is true. I mean, when I said at the, early in the film when I was starting the, the Bulgers effort, like, ugh, it, life's going to be so simple for a while. I'm going to be climbing mountains. It's because I'm still in touch with the fact that the whole reason I do this, like, it's not for the film. It's not for, for all this. I mean, it's cool. I'm get, I have a chance to speak to people now and impact their lives. Like, that's awesome. But the reason I went out to climb mountains is because I genuinely love climbing mountains. And the thing I looked forward to each day was not finishing the project and being done with it. It was, oh man, this mountain has this epic glacier I get to go across and it's gonna be beautiful and I'm gonna see this blue ice and this great view. And then I get to climb this rock up to the top. Um, some days I got to climb through the clouds and be above the clouds and only see the other peaks. Like that's why I'm doing it, is for those experiences. What Finishing it did feel good, but it was way better to be out there doing it. You totally get that feeling in the film, too, just thinking of the moment where you're waking up with the mosquito net over your face. You're like, it's 5.30 a.m. I get to go climb some mountains today. <laughs> feel it, probably. Did you have a question there? Somebody in this area? Go ahead, yeah. Uh, 
could, could you ask that one more time? Wow, he's, he's teeing that one up for us. <laughs> Mason planted the question in the audience. <laughs> Mason, you better give him 20 bucks. Um, actually, yeah, uh, one of the cool things is I could have a hanker. I mean, one of, the, one of the big things with a project like this, obviously, is your body recovering enough to not just continuously deteriorate. And sometimes, yeah, like I don't just want sweet things. Like sometimes you eat so many, you know, I mentioned the Snickers bar, you eat so many sweet things in a day, you just don't want that flavor anymore. And so having a cool, refreshing, like bitter flavor of an IPA at the end of a day or in the middle of a day and still like being able to drive to the next peak, still being able to go back out to climb the next thing. Actually, yeah, I did drink some and it was pretty awesome to be able to be like, ah, oh, I can indulge and continue. Placebo. <laughs> Go ahead, Chris. My question is just about um, how, what were the most difficult things? So you talked about hearing a lot of your story is about like the achievements of it. And, uh, and so I was also wondering about how your body changed and you already answered that. But, um, yeah, so into deeper, like what are the hardest things about SKT, about this kind of life? Well, I mean, <laughs> Obviously, any, any ultra race you run or any, any mountain you climb, you're going to have those low points that you go through um, where you question your training and you question whether it's going to work out or if you're going to drop out. Um, and to, to face those sometimes when those things go wrong in the deep backcountry, um, those can be some difficult moments to wade through. Um, for example, we were uh, a day into the backcountry um, for a group of peaks, a group of eight peaks, and that was the one where you saw I was crossing that really uh, fast-running creek, the wide creek. Um, it was running like a whole half, like a time and a half higher than it normally was running um, when people would go to do those peaks. And being out there, and one of what happened is uh, I was wearing a set of shoes that had a solid heel cup. And I really liked the shoes, and, and I'd run uh, like 50 milers out of the box in them, and they'd been fine. But what I didn't account for is that solid heel cup touching into the back of my Achilles tendon when I was constantly climbing these 60-degree um, slopes and, and steeper. And so slowly it impinged the bottom of my Achilles tendon. And now I didn't have clairvoyance to know that that's what it was, all I got to feel is like, okay, my Achilles tendon is swelling up. I'm getting pain with every step, just like piercing pain. And the first thing that comes to mind is, am I tearing my Achilles tendon from my heel bone right now? Like that's a, an injury that happens to people in their 30s. Like, am I doing that? Um, and so I had to like contemplate through this as I'm a day away from, you know, the nearest exit. And luckily, you know, I, I started troubleshooting and um, I kicked the heel down and just started walking on it like we all do when we're lazy in the morning to go get our cup of coffee. And the pain went away. It's like, okay, it's just the impingement. It's not a problem with the tendon. But then I had the problem of now for however long it takes for the swelling to go away while still doing between 8 and 25 miles and 5,000 to 20,000 feet of vert a day, how long does it take for a swollen Achilles tendon to go down? And so what I had to do is I had to cut a V into the back of every pair of shoes um, and just basically have a 
yeah, this big cutout that would sit around my Achilles tendon and just keep going. Um, so I guess that maybe kind of answers some of what you were talking about. Ouch. Any more? Here we go. Twenty twenty was interesting, like already being in it, and it was already kind of my lifestyle. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess the most dis the most distinctive thing that happened is I kind of had this whole mapped notebook of like one hundred and forty different options I could potentially beat the record on. Um, and what happened is <laughs> I started having to like cross a lot more of those off because other people were just going out and like ticking them off. And it's like, okay, you know, I run the numbers based on my current fitness. Like, this is how fast I can run. Uh, on flatland right now, roughly. This is how my vertical ascent rate right now um, at such and such heart rate, which means this is theoretically possible or theoretically I would need to train a lot longer to be able to do this one. Um, it made the game, the chess game, a lot more complicated because suddenly there were a lot more players. And so the game was constantly getting harder as I played it. Um, so yeah, it was an interesting change, but it wasn't like it was unwelcome. It's like, okay, more people are doing this thing now. Um, more, more is better, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, it did change everything for Pest's own time. Buzz Braille said so on my podcast. He said the pandemic changed everything and brought so many people into this movement. And it's at least one silver lining from godforsaken two years. But <laughs> knock on wood, it seems like we're doing better now. Question in the back. Great question. You know, I would, I think I would treat the people around me even better than I did. There were times where I got beat up and tired and stressed out, and I was less than a great person to them, and they had to deal with that when they themselves were tired and worn out, and that's no fun for anybody. And so I would say if there was one thing I would change, I would be a little better person in those moments. Beautiful answer, too. Mason, how are we doing on time? Uh, cool. <laughs> Any other questions before we get to the raffle? There we go. Here's one. Uh, got a couple on the horizon. Um, the big one that's coming up shortest term is... Uh, a fellow named Sean O'Rourke, who's kind of a, a legend known as Dr. Dirtbag in the Sierra. Um, he and I arrived at the same idea um, separately and then had a conversation and we're like, we just had the same idea. Does this mean we're doing it together? Um, are we best friends? Are we best friends? <laughs> um, and so what we both realized, and if there's someone in here who can do it before us, I guess, good luck, um, is there's this traverse called Norman's 13, and it's kind of like Nolan's 14. It's all of the 14ers of the Sierra range. But what both of us had separately realized is if you break the record for this technical traverse of these Sierra 14ers, the 13 of them, when you come out the exit trailhead, you're ahead of the record for the California 14er by bike, even though you haven't biked between all of them using the road. And so if you just leave a bike there and get on the bike, and go bike the 
420 miles to tag the last two peaks in California, you get two records in one effort. So this summer, I did the traverse between Langley and Mount Whitney. That alone, like, nearly put me in the hospital. So the, this, what, what is it called again? Norman's 13? Norman's 13. Gosh. Psychopath. <laughs> any, more, any more questions for, for Jason? Here we go. Right now, it's uh, a little bit bike-oriented because during the there were very few of these FKTs that were very bike-heavy over the course of the hundred, um, and so I'm kind of realizing like, okay, if I'm going to be ready for um, some of these, you know, like the 420 miles of this um, effort, I'm kind of leaning into that, um, and then yeah, logging, still logging maybe between 40 and 60 miles on foot with between 8,000 and maybe 12,000 feet of vert in a week, and then just logging as many bike hours as I can, which has been a lot of trainer hours because winter keeps intermittently happening in the PNW. You're a Swiss Army knife. <laughs> Biking, climbing, running, mountaineering, glacier travel. Uh, two more questions before we go to the, the raffle. Any more hands? Here we go. You know, people always bring that up because a lot of people really love skiing. I guess my thought is I, I can ski well enough, but it's always, I, I enjoy moving uphill and downhill in the mountains on foot just well enough. It's like I don't derive that much more pleasure personally from it. So I kind of think when I hit that point where my knees start to hurt too much, suddenly the skiing will become a much bigger part, part of my life. Isn't Nathan's uh, SPS record that he's doing right now. He's doing a lot of skiing. On yeah, those he, chose to, he chose to ski the whole front end of, yeah. do a bunch of classic ski lines on the Sierra because he's a, an amazing skier. Yeah. This is one of the things that I think is exciting about the future of the FKT movement is implementing more bike to run, ski and run, and you know, just a lot of different modalities as opposed to just everything on foot. Well, the whole thing that makes it interesting is the creativity and then like having to problem solve the optimal season. So it's like you add more sports in there. Like if you're going to ski and pack raft, like that's a pretty narrow band of making a decision for an optimal season. That's why I love this FKT cup idea. Cause it's like you pick the sequence in which you do the FKTs, you pick the, you hope to pick the right day. It adds a whole nother level of complexity to it. I love this idea. We got to work on that. <laughs> One more. Kevin Wolf, shut us down. Yeah, so you mentioned you were into triathlons before. Of running, biking, and swimming, which one do you hate the most? <laughs> Easily swimming. <laughs> it, was my, it was my weakest discipline, and in part because I skipped swim workouts to get on the bike more. <laughs> okay, thank you guys so much for your questions. Mason, we're ready for the uh, raffle. There he is. <laughs> Live pod number one, done and dusted. What did you guys think? I had such a great time doing this. Thanks to Jason for the opportunity. I'm so excited to see the future of Fastest Known Time. I feel really confident that it is in good hands with people like Jason. 
in leadership roles at the helm of the community. Thanks also to Athletic Brewing for putting the event on and inviting me out. It's really, really super fun. As always, a big thank you to our sponsors, Speedland, the best trail shoe in the world, SLHSV is here. It's ready for your spring and summer adventures. Go grab a pair at runspeedland.com. Gnarly Nutrition, sponsor of Jason Hardrath's as well, powered him through the Bulgers 100 FKT. All NSF certified products in recyclable packaging, much of it in recycled aluminum to reduce plastic waste. And all of it is just top tier, top quality products for your trail objectives. Visit gonarly.com. Use code FREETRAIL15 for the best nutrition products on the market. Finally, Inside Tracker, one of the biggest supporters of the sport of trail running, an incredible service to our community. Go get yourself an Inside Tracker blood test. Go to insidetracker.com forward slash free trail. Check in on yourself. Make sure that you're in peak condition ahead of your big summer races and adventures. Blood don't lie, as they say. I love that. Insidetracker.com forward slash free trail. You get 20% off. Hope you guys have an awesome week. We'll talk to you again very soon. Love you. Bye.